some water. Thank you. Okay. Um, <coughs> good afternoon, and uh, we're starting a little bit late, but I think we can run on. So, uh, is that right? Yeah. Yes. Great. And um, uh, yeah, I'm Andrew Miller. This is Rupert Thompson, and um, and I'm going to be uh, interviewing Rupert today, and Rupert's going to be interviewing me tomorrow. So if I make a hash of this. I get my own back. This time tomorrow, I'm going to be kind of sorry, you know. So um, I'm watching I'm you with an eagle eye. Yeah, I know you are. <laughs> I know you are. And um, uh, so, uh, let me just uh, tell you a little, a few little things. We're here principally to speak about uh, Rupert's new book, Catherine Carlyle, but we'll talk about some other things too um, on our way to talking about uh, that wonderful book. And um, I met Rupert in a tower in Italy uh, years ago now when we were kind of, uh, yeah, just seems a lot younger. I've seen, I've seen film from there recently and we just looked very Were we younger? <laughs> we were so much younger. <laughs> and, um, and he was on the, on the floor above me so uh, I heard his pacing and he heard my muttering from the, from the floor below. And, um, and we spent six weeks living in this tower together and, uh, which was actually great. And we spent a lot of evenings sitting downstairs in our little kitchen, drinking um, Moretti beer and, and sort of, and talking. But I don't know how much we really talked about books and writing. We talked, we must have talked a bit about books and writing. We talked a lot about life, women. <laughs> um, children. Children, in fact. Yeah, he already had one. Then I, it sounded so good, I got one now. Yeah, it sounded, it sounded great. You know, being a dad sounded I'm so good. pretty much responsible <laughs> yeah. for Andrew's child. That's right. I'm not a girl who just had her 12th birthday yesterday. So, um, so thank you for that, Rupes. And, uh, but this is a chance. Uh, and I think it's, my, my theory is that writers don't uh, always talk to each other uh, very much about what it is they're doing or about their books. Um, and... Uh, I remember being in Australia with Bernard McLaverty one time when I was just very new to, to writing and to my, with my first novel. And Bernard McLaverty, who you know, was, was a wonderful writer, is a wonderful writer, and, 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 um, and he said to me as we went out to have a drink, you know, the deal is I won't ask you about your book, you don't ask me about mine, you know. And that's how I think it often is with, with writers. We just kind of talk past each other's work. So this is a great little opportunity for me to um, just push open the study door a little bit. Um, and we can you all. You think I'm going to answer this yeah, question? Yeah, we, we can all peek in and see what is Rupert Thompson up to in there, in that room. Um, so that makes me very happy. Um, I'll just give you a little. I mean, a lot of you here will know a lot about Rupert already. Well, one of you is married to him. Um, so, and one of you uh, has him as a father. So, uh, you know something. For others, let me just very briefly. Um, Rupert. I, he was born in Eastbourne, which I think Eastbourne's a faintly comical place, for example. But it's um, uh, so you're a kind of you know son of Eastbourne, which is which is interesting. Yeah, you know, I used to feel yeah, I, yeah. I I used to feel really badly about that. I think it's great um, until yeah. I discovered that Angela Carter came from there oh, did as she? well. Yeah, that yeah, made me feel yeah. much better. No, lots, especially yeah. as I'd once been introduced yeah. at an event as uh, the male Angela Carter. Well, okay, we which may come back great, to that. We may yeah, come we, back. We could to come the, back to that. You was the male Angela Carter. Um, which is all sorts of images and, yeah. and that. Um, you need more hair because she was a yeah. great, great mane of grey hair, didn't she? Um, 
But uh, and then yeah, so you were bright and you were a bright boy. I was I did, you did well at school. I did so badly at school. You did well, and got scholarships and went to Cambridge really young. So mm. seventeen, you went to got a scholarship to to Cambridge, which mm. is so you were actually quite a quite a confident young man. Uh, um, at least in we're starting early on, aren't we? Yeah. So, let me think. Um, I, th I think what happened with me was I was fast streamed. I went to school uh, when I was 10. I went to this charity boarding school when I was 10 instead of 11. And I, I kept that year ahead. I was a year uh, behind everyone mm, in mm, age, mm. sorry. So I was a year ahead kind of academically. And so when the time, you know, I did A-levels at 16 and then I did really well. And I think I did really well because um, there was absolutely no pressure on me because I knew I'd be able to take them again. Ah, okay. So I remember reading, you know, for my, my revision for the English paper was, was uh, I was doing King Lear and I read King Lear at the top of a tree in a storm. <laughs> that was basically it. And, you know, I did incredibly well because I had all these amazing ideas and um, didn't, wasn't hampered by, there was no pressure on me. No, okay. Um, I think, you know, it's, it, it's, it's great actually. This also feeds into the writing of books, um, curiously, because it's really clever if you can find ways of not putting yourself under pressure when you're writing. And, and we can talk about process a bit later on, but, yeah. you know, this comes into my own process of how I write a novel, how to remove pressure from that process. So you, you do your degree and you're 20-something and had you already decided this is what you wanted to do, that you wanted to give your life to Well, writing? I deliberately didn't do English. No, um, you didn't. I, because I thought I was going to read those books anyway. Medieval um, and history and... I read medieval history and political yeah. philosophy. Which, um, you know, people talk about uh, teachers who are important for them. And, um, and usually these teachers tend to be from sco your school. But with me, it was someone at Cambridge. And it was this incredible man. He was a, a Hungarian immigrant called Robert Wokler. And um, when I first went to Cambridge, I, I wrote the, what he called uh, Edwardian essays in an Edwardian style, incredibly floral style, you know, these mm. floral long, lots of commas in the sentences. And, um, and he, in my second year at university, was the one who questioned every word that I wrote. Okay. And he, he my, my, my essays would come back from him with, with jam all over them. He obviously read them at breakfast, or else he had breakfast all day long, you know, who knows. But, but he, he, um, he was so meticulous and precise about the use of language. Mm. And, and that was the toughest thing I did at college and, and, and the most valuable. And the, real, the heartbreaking part of this is actually I, I got invited back to my college uh, about actually nearly 10 years ago now to judge a reading competition by the students. And... Um, and I was talking to my old history supervisor and saying, what was the name of that man who taught political philosophy? And he said, Robert Wokler. And I said, I really want to see him because I want to thank him for changing the way I wrote. Because I think you can sort of still see, I think you can sort of see Robert Wokler in Catherine Carlyle somehow in the spareness of the prose. And, and he said, oh, he died three years ago. Oh. And so um, that was really sad. I really wanted to go up and be able to say thank you. Yes. Yes. Well, but had he been, do you think he'd have been following? Uh, I have no idea. You, well, I, I bet no he, he would have noticed. He would have. He, he sounds like the sort of guy who, who do you keeps think his he eye knew on he was yeah. responsible. I, I like, well, <laughs> why I not? I like to think so. Why yeah. not? Why not? And so you've, you've finished this, you've done your political thought and, and your, and your uh, 
medieval history and are you that stage thinking this is I'm trying to sort of pinpoint when it is you decide ah, to give your life to writing because right. I, I um, feel it was a moment perhaps it wasn't a moment I think I I think I really had given my life to writing earlier than that when I was about 12 or 13 because I, I remember I was obsessed with Thomas Hardy and I remember getting on my bicycle one summer holiday when I was 15 and riding all the way from Eastbourne to um, Dorset. It's quite a long way. I um, can't really remember where I slept. I mean, I must have slept somewhere. But um, I was doing a pilgrimage, you know, and I, I also remember around that time copying all Thomas Hardy's poems out by hand. And I think what I was trying to do was sort of le learn something about how he'd written what he'd written, as if by a kind of osmosis. You know, mm. if I wrote down those lines, I would somehow learn something simply by writing them. Um, so it was in my mind back then, but um, not long after leaving university, I, I went to live in Athens and I had a, not much money, but enough money to rent this little unfurnished apartment. And I tried to write my first novel. And uh, I didn't really have anything to say, I don't think. I mean, I had all the desire, but nothing really. I, I remember that the book was, was 160 pages of sort of, you needed a machete to get into it. It was incredibly dense, okay. full of imagery. Yeah. And, um, and right. I, I've still got it, yeah. actually, somewhere. Occasionally, your agent no doubt asks you to show. No, no. Should it, I burn no, it? No, I keep no, thinking. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm, a, I'm, I'm. You know, because even when you go back to books you've yeah. written ten, or, I don't know whether this happens with you, but if I go back to a book I wrote 15, 20 years ago and open it up, I don't wreck it. I sort of think, oh, that's that's quite good. <laughs> but I have no recognition of of, re of writing it right. at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's yeah. as if someone else did it. Have you ever sat down and just read through your stuff? No, uh, no, 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 likewise, no, I, just, no. I, I really just don't want to do that at all. Um, but, uh, okay, so, uh, so you already, I mean, it's interesting that you copied out poems. I mean, okay, copy out the novels would take a little longer. Uh, no, well, I wanted novels. to be a poet first. But you wanted to be a poet, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, so, so then the, the novelist thing happened later, sort of 1920. Right. And then I, so I failed, obviously, uh, first time around, and then... Um, I came to. I moved to London, and I and I kind of got a job, and and then I began to um, think I, I've got to give it another go. Yeah. Um, I found myself saying in the creative department of this advertising agency, I, I found myself saying the kind of thing that other people, I'd heard other people in the creative department saying, which was, of course, what I really want to do is paint, or what I really want yeah. to do is write. Yeah. And I actually yeah. found myself saying that one day, mm. coming out with that, well, that bullshit really, because. I, di I didn't want to be the kind of person that went through my life saying, oh, what I really am is this. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you're not, because you haven't tried. So I, the moment I heard myself say that, I thought, I, I, have to, um, I have to actually give it another go. Right, yeah. So I, I remember being offered a job for twice the money for, in a different advertising agency with a video recorder thrown Ooh. in free. That tells you how long ago it was. Um, and and uh, I, I turned the job down and I left the place where I was and went to a farmhouse in Italy where I was a winter caretaker. Um, I had to paint the wooden beams with foul liquid, you know, which dripped down your arm and left red right, stains. Right, right, right. Um, you know, prune roses, actually things I knew nothing about. <laughs> Amazing the roses survived. Uh, and, and, but I could write, you know, all, all day long. Yeah. And it was free. And you so felt, that's where yeah. it began, that's yeah. where Dreams of Leaving began. Yeah, yeah, which was the first, yeah. but that's 1987. That Published in 87. Comes out. So you actually been writing a long time. Yes. Publishing a long time. I mean, you know, writing 
mm. years before that, but publishing for a long time. That 1957 suddenly seems quite remote, doesn't it? Not uh, suddenly. No. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> which is and now one of the things that became sort of uh, clear to me in the Tower, uh, and uh, perhaps slightly intimidated me, uh, was that you were a very disciplined uh, writer, a serious writer. I mean, not that I think I'm not a serious writer, or that the other, you know, but somehow I just got um, the sense of ambition, seriousness, and discipline um, to do with that with you writing. Also, we, there, was a, there was a pool, and there's one of a nice place we were staying at. There was an outdoor pool. I can see Rupert swimming lengths, you know, 100 lengths maybe you'd do with that thing, mm. you know, up and down, then back to, to go and do some more, couple more hours and stuff. And, and I was aware that my routine was a little more, you know, fluffy. You're doing all right, though, Andrew. Well, <laughs> yeah. And, and so discipline and ambition and hard work seem at the core of, uh, of the way you have gone about your writing life. And uh, in fact, what I'm going to do, I'm going to test you now on something. It's a little test for you. You get this wrong, we're all going to leave. No, okay. we're not even going to make eye contact. We're just going to just going to leave. Uh, is it tell me who this is by? Who this? <laughs> this quote is from. It's a right. quote. It's not from you. No. All right. Um, and uh, uh, and I'm. It's in English, although it's written in German originally. Um, it seems to me that the ultimate intuitions and insights will only approach one who lives in his work and remains there. And whoever considers them uh, from afar gains no power over them. Yeah, it's, it's Rainer Maria Rilke, the, um, the German poet. I actually quote that sometimes because I know you in events. <laughs> yeah, because, and not recently, actually. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, uh, it, it's because it's, it's those two words remaining there. Yeah. And, and um, I've always felt, you know, sometimes in this kind of event, when you get a question from the audience, people say, you know, what about inspiration? Do you have to wait for inspiration? And what part does it play? And, and I always think um, inspiration actually, it's not something you wait for. If you wait for it, nothing's going to happen. You, you sort of have to be there for, for the inspiring moments yeah. to take place. Yeah. And, and that means there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of simple, cra well, craft isn't that simple, but there's a lot of simple writing, simple craft that takes place when you're, when you're writing a book. It's, mu it's, it's as much about persistence. It's much more about persistence, really, than about um, inspiration. I mean, inspiration actually does happen, though. And, and often it's sort of when I'm, when I'm in the changing village, as they call it, in the swimming pool. You know, I'll be just sort of wringing my trunks out, and I'll be vaguely thinking about what I'm going to do that day. And then something will occur to me. And it's often in those moments of relaxation yeah. That you, yeah, that you get those moments of, and it may, the breakthrough may be a small one, it may just be a sentence that you've been thinking about, or it could be huge, you know. Um, yeah, because you, um, you work in, I understand, in periods of months where you don't do much else, really. Mm. You do, what, seven hours, seven, you know, six days a week or something like seven that. Seven days a week. Seven days a week. Well, right? I... I my wife and daughter are here, so they will back me up on this. But I, we, we lived in Barcelona from uh, 2004 to 2010. And I was, uh, I was in my seven hours a day, seven days a week, but my daughter was young. And my wife at one point said, you know, you have to take a bit more time off or you're going to miss her growing mm. up. And um, I thought, oh, yes, that's probably true, even though I'm there at the beginning and end of every day. 
and I made this huge compromise, which was to work six and a half days a week. <laughs> and it meant that I never went out on Saturday night, because on Sunday morning, I, You'd have I, to I get up, up really up. early. Oh. I'd be at work, and I worked in a convent. <laughs> I had a room in a convent that I rented from these nuns at the back of Barcelona. That's another story in itself. Um, and I would get there about 7.15 in the, on Sunday morning, and I'd work in a very, very focused way, till about 11.30. And I would actually get my day's work done in that four hours, and then I'd be back by the time my wife and daughter were sort of up and ready to go. So actually, we, in, we effectively had a full day. Right. But, um, yeah, I, I'm terribly... Um, this, is, this is probably, as a result of age, probably, it's probably intensifying now, that terribly aware of the, the shortness of time, you know, and how long a book takes to write if, you, if you're going to write it properly. Because for you, three years is about, I think they, they I mean, you, you... Two and a half, three. Yeah. So, you know, if I didn't, if I, if I worked three or four days a week, they would take twice as long, wouldn't they? Well, <laughs> yeah, in theory, that's how it should work. Yeah, whether, whether that's... Uh, and I kind of can't afford yeah. six years, you know, at this point. And also, I don't know whether this is happening with you, but, but I'm, getting, I'm getting more ideas than ever before. I seem to have them stacked up now. I mean, I have... In, in holding my, patterns. No? Yeah, 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 in different stages yeah. of readiness or, or of being worked on. So um, it used to be just that I would go from one to the next. And when I finished one, I would have right. the idea for the next. But right. now it's, there's two or three, you know. I mean, the book, I've, I've nearly finished the book beyond this one. Have you? Yeah. I'm yeah, going to okay. deliver at Christmas, I think. Wow. I've already written two drafts for the one beyond that. And I know what the one beyond that is, although I haven't done anything about yes, it yet. Yes. So, yeah, so th there is an order to the, you know, the way they fly in and land. Um, but, but that could change. Uh, there's always the sense that one can suddenly become more urgent and, and insist. Well, yes, because, I mean, we are changing. You know, what, what holds you now might hold you less three years from now. Although that really surprises me, the extent to which an idea... Um, grips you once you've decided that's the one. Okay. You know, I, I've never, um, I've never really abandoned something once I've embarked on it. Okay. I think everything has been taken to fruition, and um, I've abandoned ideas that that I haven't started. Okay. Okay. But once I actually start work on something, then it becomes like something I have to. Because it, for me, it's always like an exploration. The, the first draft of something is. It's like writing into the unknown. There's that wonderful W.H. Auden quote about... Someone asked W.H. Auden, um, they said, uh, is it true that you can only write what you know? And he said, yes, but you don't know what you know until you write it. <laughs> and that's very much what it feels like. You know, uh, when I begin, I have a grain of something. It, it can be pretty abstract. Um, and for some reason, I'm interested in it. And I've learned to trust that instinct, um, to have a kind of faith in it, even though there's very little to trust. And other people, and sometimes that grain is, a, is something really daft, you know, like that, that another writer, you or any other writer in this room, would think, that's, that's not a book. Mm, mm. But for somehow, for me, it is a book. Mm, mm. And, um, and so, so I embark on something, and I'm, I'm really sort of flying blind. Um, I used to use this image about my first draft. I would say it's like driving along a motorway with no headlights on, which I've never actually done. <laughs> but, you know, there's the sense that you, you suddenly don't know where you are. You could crash. Mm. 
when you turn them on again, you're in a place that you, you don't recognize. And um, so, so with me, there's no plan. I write without structure, without plan, without any knowledge of where. So the, what's where what's it's going. what precedes the moment of putting down the words? Then what? Something that feels yeah. urgent. I mean, with Catherine Carlyle, it it was um, it was very peculiar with this one because it was two opposite things happened at once. One was I was standing actually in my little office in the convent. Um, so my office was on the ground floor on the street level and had sort of barred windows. And, mm. and there was a flight of brick steps that went past the, the window of my office up to where the nuns were. And so when I worked on Sundays, I often felt I shouldn't be working there on Sundays. Yeah, <laughs> it's probably a especially bylaw, Especially know? because I would yeah. sort of, I would, I would see all the, because people would go to a service up above. Mm. So it wouldn't just be the nuns, it would be other people from the area. And uh, the, I would see them filing up past me, I would see their legs. Right. And, um, and then singing, sweet singing would begin. I love it. And I'd be downstairs writing scenes of terrible depravity in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> and there was something... Well, I, in a sense, that was the world. You this, know, well, it's, also, the it's, also, it's also the Catholic yeah. face, isn't yeah. it? You know, like in yeah. microcosm, <laughs> somehow. Yeah. It's, uh, um, yeah. But I, so, so one... I was just standing in my mm. office and I, I'd been... Um, I can actually see myself at the moment when Catherine Carlyle occurred to me be because I was writing this memoir which is called This Party's Got to Stop and I, I did finally finish it and publish it. Um, but I'd written two drafts of it and it, and I, it wasn't working. It, I, was t I was really depressed about it because it had a great beginning and a great end but it sagged terribly in the middle, didn't know what to do about it and it was the first book I'd ever written that was true, you know, that was, that was non-fiction. Non-fiction, yeah. And I found that almost impossible, um, you know, writing about yourself. I don't know whether you've ever done that, um, but it's, it's the hardest thing, I think. There are so many pitfalls. Uh, so I, I, I was thinking... I love thinking that book, by the way. It, it, this part's got to stop. Is it, if, you, if you don't know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fantastic... Well, it's, uh, a, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, about, um, yeah. it's about three brothers who return to... We, we, my father died in 84, and my mother had died 20 years previously, so we were suddenly orphans in our 20s. And all three brothers mm. moved back to the house in Eastbourne where we were born and where we grew up. And we lived there for the next seven months all together, you know, in this extraordinary kind of commune. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, made more complicated by the fact that my youngest brother had a wife and a child. So, so you know, my, myself and my next brother down went back to the house thinking, oh, we can have people down from London, we can have parties, we can stay up all night. But then there was my other youngest brother who was a banker with a child who was only six months old. So we used to call them the unit <laughs> because they sort of moved everywhere together right, know, and, right, and never separated. Right, right. Um, the unit was not, was not really a very kind way to refer to them. But no, that book, um, that book turned out all right. But, um, well, more than all right. But at this, but, uh, this point, I was, I was you know, thinking, I, I'm, at, I'm at a loss. I really don't know what to do. And then suddenly there was this young woman, 19 years old, in my head, I mean, there was this 19-year-old woman with a voice. Um, I could actually see her. I knew what mm. she looked like. Mm. Um, and she had an agenda. Mm. She was driven by the fact that she felt invisible in the world. Something about this young woman, she had moments where she felt like she didn't exist and she had to do quite violent things, almost bump into the world so she felt something. So yeah, that would prove she was alive. Yeah, so, so um, that yeah. book began suddenly right there, and I, and of course at the time I, I thought, 
Wow, I had no idea um, that I was going to be writing not only about a 19-year-old woman, but as one, because I write in the first person. Yep. Um, it seemed to come from nowhere, but then you get to this stage where you're talking about a book, you know, and it's sort of a bit, it's a bit like it's not yours anymore, and, and you suddenly start to come up with theories about, <laughs> about what it is. And, and you're required to, because someone like Andrew Miller is asking you questions. And, um, so you, and, you're, and you're the author of it, you're supposed to have the answers. Um, so I suddenly thought, my God, this, this book is just unbelievably autobiographical. You know, it, it so clearly originates in something that I've been through. So, so the two things, and maybe this is the case for all books, but with this particular book, it seemed particularly true. That, that those, you know, on the one hand, it seemed to come from nowhere. On the other hand, it was something that I'd actually lived through. This, you're thinking particularly about the death of the mother? Or? No, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about the... I'm thinking about... Um, well, the whole IVF idea. Mm, mm. The idea that... Um, and also the way that... I think of this book as a kind of updating of Frankenstein in a way. Because I don't... How many of you actually have read Frankenstein? I'm really impressed because it's difficult. I mean, I don't know whether you found it difficult. It's a really dense, quite difficult read. And I, there was a certain point during the writing of this where I thought I must actually read Frankenstein because it's, it, Frankenstein for me is about um, parents and children. Mm, mm. You know, the creature, everything bad that the creature does in that book, including, you know, murdering poor little William, is because he's not loved. It's because his creator, his father, as it were, um, has, has paid him no attention, has rejected him. And he's trying to get the attention of his father. He wants to belong, he wants to be loved. And, um, you know, the, it, it's the, the, that book is all about um, a child seeking the love of its parent. Mm -hmm. And um, this is what Catherine Carlyle is. Yeah. Catherine Carlyle has lost her mother to an ovarian cancer that's possibly IVF re related. And perhaps as the result of the death of his wife, um, her father has become a distant figure, you know, emotionally and geographically. So she's lost her beloved mother, and her father is sort of never there. Um, reports and from elsewhere, yeah. Yeah, yeah, report, yeah literally yeah, reports yeah, from yeah, elsewhere, because yeah. he's a TV yeah, journalist, yeah. so he's always on TV. Yeah. There's a great scene in the book where she's left where she lives, because she sort of does a runner from her life. And, wonders what her father's going to do about it and whether he'll even notice that she's gone. Mm. And she sees him on TV in Berlin, you know, and one of those shops that have many, many screens mm. in the window. Mm. So there's lots of her father suddenly, yeah. lots of yeah. images of her yeah. father. Yeah. And she's looking at him through two screens of glass, you know, not just through the window of the shop, but through the yeah. glass of the television. Yeah. And, and somehow that's perfect, mm. summing up as a way of summing up their relationship. So, you know, her disappearance from her life is a way of testing, does my father love me? And if so, what is the nature of his love? Yes. Well, family certainly, I mean, we should say, you know, the, the book, Catherine, it's first person, Catherine Carlyle. She's, it's her story, I suppose, uh, more than anybody else's. And uh, she goes, it's a voyage, uh, powered by chance in many ways, mm. by chance encounters. She, she's, um, she's a kind of secret agent uh, almost in yeah. the way that she's kind of and the, the book almost says 
partly because the Berlin setting is 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 uh, is, is is a big part of the, mm. the book. So that, I mean, many of us associate that perhaps with with a classic spy fiction, and and she is someone who's reading the world all the time and and uh, and making her next move based upon uh, what she picks up, what she what she what she reads. Uh, and from also that on the work. basis of yeah. also on the basis of something that she doesn't quite understand. Yeah, in the sense that. You know, she's she was living in Rome. She's basically someone who's who's uh, been brought up. She's English, but she's brought up in Rome. That's where her her mother wanted to be based as she was dying. It's the place she always wanted to live. So um, so it's also a place associated associated with melancholy and sadness for her. But Rome is the place she leaves, and she moves north in a, almost a due north line to Berlin, without. And she's wiped her laptop clean and left it on a wall. She's dropped her phone in the Tiber. It rings as it drops. She always wonders who was calling. <laughs> um, and then flies to Berlin, having told no one, none of her friends or anyone where she's gone. Um, and in Berlin, as Andrew suggested, pick, pick, picks up a new life, life on the basis of almost nothing. But it's a life in which she is somehow magically in control of. She wants to be in control of something. And she's, I always see her as a kind of ecstatic. You know, she's in a state of rapture, but it's a rapture that's very misguided. And, and which is going to be dangerous because she's going to put herself in more and more difficult situations. But what she's doing is moving from the hot to the cold. She's moving ever further north. So she goes much further north than Berlin. It's as if she's trying to return to something which we haven't even mentioned, mm. which is the fact that as an IVF baby, she was frozen as an embryo for eight years before yeah. she was implanted in her mother. So she takes this idea of having been frozen eight years as a metaphor for her life, how she feels about things, a sense of abandonment, if you like, a sense of being neglected, a sense of not knowing whether you're going to be loved enough to be brought into existence, mm. properly mm. into mm. existence. So, um, so it's as if she's returning to where she came from, mm. but she somehow doesn't quite understand that. You know, she's, she's all caught up in the, uh, the surface excitement of it. Yeah, yeah. And it's... it's um so it's yeah. There's, it's a there's a voyage. Uh, there's a journey which we won't. We mustn't say too much about where that ends up. But um, Mary Shelley and Frankenstein clearly. Uh, I mean, it took me a while to, to kind of get that. Well, no, I it's not. It's, not uh, it's very subtle now. I mean, the book in yeah. an earlier the, the book in an earlier uh, version was called Frankenstein's Daughter, and um, that was too overt for me because I thought. Yeah. You know, someone actually, I told someone that title and they said it sounds like a horror novel and I didn't really want, I didn't really want to give people that idea. Mm, mm. Um, I wanted to pull it back from that. So the only, the only um, reference to Frankenstein now is, is the epigraph. Yeah, that's right. Which is, that's right. Which is Mary Shelley, yeah. um, one of the epigraphs. Was, was that um, epigraph there right uh, early on no. or was that came you, no, no, you, came that you found that later? No, it came and, when and, I read the book. Yeah, um, yeah. I suddenly thought... Yeah, yeah. That's so perfect, because I can't remember what it yeah, says. Yeah, it says, now. well, you want to read it? Just that little, just uh, give it a quick... Um... This is the shortest reading I've ever done. Yeah. How... <laughs> I'll do it if you want. <laughs> I don't know whether you can bear this. I mean, it's going to take a while. Spit it out. How slowly the time passes here, encompassed as I am by frost and snow. There we are. It's perfect for the IVF, for the frozen embryo. Yeah. You know, yeah. Because, because the book begins with her imagining giving herself a voice as it were back then in the in the in the pre-womb stage you know in in the in the freezing tank 
where she's held at sort of minus 321, minus 321 Fahrenheit in liquid nitrogen. She imagines what that's like if, if you could have a consciousness inside there, the yeah. waiting in the dark and the cold and not knowing how long it's going to be. Are you ever going to get out of there? You know, will you be given life or not? So it's very poignant and very powerful, you know, and, and that, that, it's that sense of longing that she takes into her life at age 19 and carries with her. Yeah, I mean, there's one of the well, things I love about this book, it's, it's, it is quite, an, I mean, you're telling us things about it now, and, and, and one of the things you just said earlier on, which, which is that, uh, you know, once you've done the thing and you start doing, uh, going around to, to events like this, and you have to be able to sound coherent about it, um, which is not necessarily quite how it is when you're doing it. I mean, then you're just following a, following a voice, following a line. I mean, you don't necessarily have... Uh, no, I mean, that French artist Louise Bourgeois says, yeah. um, a lot of what she says makes sense to me, but she said, you know, I, I never know what I'm doing until I've done it. Yeah. And it, it's very much that. Yeah, yeah. And it is, but it isn't, a, it isn't as, as a, for a reader, it's um, one of, one of the, the pleasures of the book is, is that it, is quite elusive um, and you don't easily uh, you can't easily settle on what this is this what is the nature of this story what is what is this girl actually up to um, it's mysterious and and it's um, I, I, I have more and more of an appetite for that kind of mm. both for in fiction or in cinema or something that you can't close down on too easily, you know, it's uh, just... Um, well, she tells it, she yeah. tells it from, the, as I said, yeah. in the first person, so she tells it from the inside. You know, if you were, if you were writing a third-person book about the same subject, mm. you would have to, as the writer, explain much more about what she's doing and why she's doing it. Um, if you tell it from the inside, from someone who... You know, when you're 19, you don't always know what you're doing, mm. why you're doing mm. what you're doing, mm. even if it feels powerful and you, even if you feel driven. Actually, I don't know what I'm doing now, you know, and I'm a lot older than that. Sure. So, I mean, sure. when you tell a story from the inside like that, um, all you can tell about what the world might think about that character is how people react to her. And, you know, they have... One of the things I really enjoyed about writing it was... was I've always been fascinated by, um, you know, if you're, a, if you're a woman, what it's, what it's like to deal with men, you know, what, yeah. are men, what are men like mm, if you're a woman? Mm, mm. Um, and, and I was able to look at that because I was looking through a woman's eyes at men. And the men, I have to say, don't come out of this terribly well. I mean, there's one... Is there one... The sea captain. Yes, he's, 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 he's a good guy. Yes, he is. Oh, look. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, others, of, yes, others, yes, are, are a little more predatory, well. perhaps. Um, and you know what? Is this a good moment to hear something from the... Can I read the... I, I wanted to read the bit... Because she's doing, she's doing two things when she um, travels north. As I said, she's, she's sort of testing the love of her father. But she's also um, mourning the death of her mother. I mean, this, this, I think the self-destructive side of what she's doing is really about mourning. You know, it's, a, it, it's um, putting herself in jeopardy because she's, she's been abandoned by her mother. So uh, this is... Um, her thinking about, thinking about her mother. When I was 12 and a half, my mother took me to a nightclub on the coast road, not far from Gaeta. We parked with two wheels in a ditch, then walked down a steep path between spiky clumps of aloe vera. The lanterns that hung on thin poles, guiding people to the entrance, 
swayed and flickered in the warm breeze that blew in off the sea. We'll have to pretend you're 16. My mother gave me a sideways glance. Can you manage that? I wasn't sure. Leave it to me, she said. Somehow, we slipped past the Butafuori with their muscular necks, their headsets, and their immaculate tuxedos. And once we were beyond them, my mother hugged me and then stood back. We did it, she said. You did it. I wish I had a photo of that moment, her face lit up and full of glee, and only the glittery Neapolitan darkness behind her. I drank my first ever glass of Prosecco that night. My mother drank too. Later, we danced. I let the music take me over. My hair grew heavy, spiny with sweat. You could go inside if you wanted, but there were outdoor dance floors too, some cut into the hillside, others down by the water. Steps that were tiled or inlaid with mosaic led from one level to the next. Intense green spotlights made the plants look hyper-real. Far below, white lines expanded sideways in the dark where the waves broke against the rocks. A man with a shaved head asked my mother if she'd dance with him. No, she said, I can't. He looked puzzled. Why not? I'm dying. All the more reason. They stood still, staring at each other. Then my mother shook her head and took my hand and led me to the low wall where we'd left our drinks. I liked the man for his directness and his restraint. Round his left bicep was a circular tattoo, an armband made of ink. His shaved head shone. When my mother turned him down, he shrugged and moved away, and though he continued to watch her from a distance, he didn't approach her again. I don't think she wanted anyone to enter the world she'd conjured for us. It wouldn't sustain another presence. It was too fragile and too rare, like bone china or gold leaf. I'm sorry, she said later, when we were sitting on the bench next to the sea. I don't know why I said that. To frighten him away, I said. She looked at me, her face as still and deep as water at the bottom of a well, and I thought I could see myself in it, far away and small and slightly blurred. She drew me close and kissed my hair. She told me she was proud of me and would always be proud of me. She said I should never forget that. At two in the morning, we drove north back to Rome. A dense fog swirled round the car. We were passing through the Pontine marshes, my mother said. Before Mussolini drained the region, it was a breeding ground for malaria. If the pumps were switched off, she told me, the water level would rise in less than a week. The fog thickened. She had to slow right down. It was as if we were motionless and big pale rags were being thrown at us. The temperature dropped and she turned the heater on. The heater in July. Once I peered upwards and saw a patch of dark clear sky loaded with stars. Then the fog closed round the car again. We're very late, my mother said. Your father's going to be worried. She sighed. It wears me out. I didn't know what to say. He hates me for being ill, she said. He thinks I've let him down. He loves you too, I said. She reached across and squeezed my hand. I know, Angel, I'm sorry. You probably think I'm talking nonsense. I think you're beautiful. She began to cry and the trunk of a tree leapt towards us. She swerved just in time. Oh, God, 
The car bumped up onto the verge. She put the handbrake on and wiped her eyes. Fuck. Now we were still. Bits of fog drifted through the headlights like a flock of ghostly sheep. Are you all right, I said. I saw her gather herself, all the bravery and sparkle. You'll have a wonderful life, she said. I know you will. You'll sleep in palaces and dance with presidents and... I must have given her a funny look because she broke off and started laughing. You'll see, she said. Then she shifted into gear and drove on. I dozed with my forehead against the window and when I woke, we were passing the Colosseum. In the moonlight, it looked like a big piece of bone picked clean by vultures. My mother looked across at me. Say what you used to say. You remember when you were small? I smiled because I knew exactly what she meant. Go on, she said. Please. I took a breath and turned to her. Are we there yet? Yeah, I'm glad you read that. Thanks, Rupert. Yeah, uh, uh, I mean, it's those recollections of her time with her mother are really, they have a kind of real emotional force that uh, is right at the heart of this. Uh, you know, with parents and the love between parents and children, uh, even with her father, who is a, diff you know, is a, di a very different kind of, it's a much more... Uh, her relationship with him is, is, is far less straightforward. I mean, with, with the mother, it was, you know, it's a great love story. And, and it's uh, a great love story, yeah. and, and the reason why, I mean, the, really the, re the reason why those bits are, are so important are because, are because a lot of the rest of the time, Catherine, Kit Carlyle, as she thinks of herself, is, is behaving in such a, as you suggested, quite a bizarre way that the book needed to be, she needed to be made human as well as yeah, strange. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and it's very important for me that those, those bits where she thinks about her mother, you, you then suddenly understand her pain and why she's behaving the way she is, yeah. one of the reasons why. And, and that, I thought, also would help the reader to identify with her and, and sort of be on her side a little bit, if they could feel a bit of what she was feeling. Because yeah. if, you, if you just look at her, her leaving where she comes from and, and moving through the world and bouncing from person to person and actually sort of seeming at times to be using them. Yeah, and uh, shrugging them off a little bit. Them yeah, off, yeah, I mean, um, then then you, want, you begin to understand why, mm. you know, that she's searching for herself and, 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 and these people, that, but that's not the right thing. This isn't right. You know, something else is going to be right. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the other thing that you, you hopefully heard in, in that little excerpt is just the great, great care courtesy of the Hungarian uh, tutor, perhaps, that Rupert takes uh, with, with language, um, and which makes, you know, a kind of page by page, uh, you know, it's just, I read as much for the language as anything else, you know, I think well, you, most you've got to, you do this too, Andrew, <laughs> so, where you, I mean, you do it yeah. uh, with, in the crossing, which I've just read, where you leave spaces for the reader to walk mm. into, because I think it, the film, Russian film director Tarkovsky said a book read by a thousand different people is a thousand different books. It's, it's crucial that the reader of a book makes it his or her own book. Yeah. And in order to do that, there have to be spaces for the, for the reader to walk into and yeah. inhabit and yeah. imagine. Yeah. You know, so if you deluge the reader in research, you know, in, you know I, I did end up doing a lot of research, especially about places where mm. Catherine goes. You know, I, but I did it at a late stage, yeah. because otherwise the real facts would deluge the imagined ones, would destroy them and bury them. 
Um, it's, it's very important that you just use the odd detail which gives the reader the clue of maybe as how to imagine that scene. And then yeah. it can be filled in almost, you know, and that's where the power of a book comes from. It's like a little... I always think of it as like something you put into the hard drive of the brain and then it, then it interacts with, you know, the so, reader. Yes, and w what is left out uh, mm. and, and, and the white space uh, is, is... I mean, there are lots of little incidentals. Um, uh, <laughs> He got nervous earlier on because he came into my room and he said, well, you only got to hear. <laughs> like, like, That's because we were, yeah. we were no. joking about interlocutors <laughs> at festivals and often, often it's the case that interlocutors yeah. um, don't read, don't the, read the book yeah, at yeah. all. And you can often tell because it, the questions are all quite general. Yeah, and then they try and justify yeah. it by, you know, I didn't, I didn't want that to get in the way, you know, the book. But there's kind of little beautiful things. I mean, I, my book is all marked up with... I put ticks in. <laughs> it's like I'm a marking. It's like I'm, I, a, I'm re, the, the Hungarian reborn. <laughs> um, but it's um, this little thing here. Forgive me for reading these things. But um, uh, I have a message from Massimo and Luca. Moody boys with private incomes and slim brown ankles. Love that. You know, you, I just immediately know exactly what this is. That's what they you know? like, those boys. Um, <laughs> you know, it's slim brown ankles is perfect. Those boys are there. Um, one more, one more, that, and, and um, uh, yeah, here she is in Berlin, and, um, and she's, uh, yeah, she just stops uh, to, uh, I buy, she's under a railway viaduct, it's a greengrocer's with wooden crates of clementines on the pavement outside. I buy three and watch the shopkeeper drop them glowing into a plastic bag. I peel one as I walk on. The segments are so cold they hurt my teeth. Just little things. They're just, you know, they're just something or nothing. But they just make this. Well, everybody knows when you when you've when you've yeah. um, when yeah. you've, uh, you've <laughs> you know when you eat fruit that's bought from yep. outside in the winter, yeah. and it does. That's yeah. exactly what happens. But it's that's like paying model. attention, yeah. and that's and that's carrying that attention into language, and then and, and yeah. letting us. Well, that, have it. that's part of our job, yeah, which is generosity, okay. which is great. <laughs> okay, I'm going to. I'm going to. You're going to ask some questions in a moment. Just you. <laughs> um, I'm just going to. Before I finish, I'm going to just, in, at the risk of embarrassing. Uh, Rupert, or he may love it, actually. Um, <laughs> Philip Pullman, he's got some great crits here. Um, you've not, John Salter as well, you've got, I can't, that really, James Salter, that really annoys me. that annoy me you? A lot. Yeah. A lot. <laughs> James Salter, I Because he's dead now, you can't get him. You know, I know, I know. <laughs> that feels like a good move in the game, yeah. you know, like, uh, here's, here's Philip Pullman, though. Here's Philip Pullman, just, it's just a little paragraph, just so we know what we're doing here. Um, Catherine Carlyle left me stunned and amazed. Thompson's ability to create a world that feels entirely original and untouched by any other mind is at full strength in this unusual and haunting book. The story proceeds with perfect logic from mystery to mystery and takes the reader with it, unable to stop reading or guess where it will go next. Completely unexpected and brilliantly done, Catherine Carlyle is the strongest and most original novel I have read in a very long time. It's a masterpiece. Philip Pullman. That's because he hasn't read yours yet. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> so there we go. Um, let's, uh, uh, please, yes, uh, the microphone is here. So just stick a hand up if you'd like to ask uh, Rupert a question. And, uh, and then you'll get a microphone. You can just, there's a man right at the back there. I there's think I recognize. I'll just, just say before we get any questions, if you just give me a moment to get to you, yeah. because uh, then people at the back can hear what the question is, so you're not answering some nebulous answer. <laughs> Um, yes, it's a really a question for both of you, actually, because uh, by a happy coincidence, you've both not only written novels from a female perspective, but they're both novels about women who rather radically choose to cut themselves off entirely from the usual means of communication with their loved ones and the people who know them. Do you both 
as it happens, feel slightly oppressed by the new pressure to be connected. I know Rupert has a Twitter feed and, and Andrew doesn't. Um, <laughs> I, I don't actually know. I thought Twitter was like a little machine uh, that was, you know, like a thing like this. That it, and you had to have one and then you pressed it and, and, it, and it twittered to people. Um, and, and then I found out you just type stuff into the computer yeah. uh, and, that it's not, and that seemed very uninteresting somehow, like a, a far less interesting than having a special, like a Tamagogi or something. I thought that's what it'd be like, you know? Um, you have, well, Rupert, you're just gonna switch down. You're more 21st No, no, I century. mean, I, I, um, it's amazing how much time and space in your life these things take up, you know, because it's if email wasn't invasive enough already. There's a, there's a bit in uh, Catherine Carlyle where um, she, she's, uh, Catherine's remembering something her father says about traveling when he was young in the 70s. And her, her father's roughly my age, I guess. Um, and he says, you know, when you traveled in the 70s, when you were gone, you were really gone. Because, I mean, anyone, any of you, and some of you will have done this, I'm sure, you know, if you were in Indonesia, say, in, in the early 80s or somewhere like that, then there was absolutely no contact with anybody else. You're away, you're Apart, away. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah, because a phone call, mm. that would be an emergency. There's only one reason why you would pick up the phone <laughs> that far away would be to, if something terrible had happened. Otherwise, you're just gone. And I, I found that um, a kind of, even at the time, even before the internet, I thought, this is wonderful this ability to just disappear and, and be gone and have adventures and, and then return dramatically into people's lives. Yeah. You know, that was quite good yeah. as well, because they always say, how long have you been away? And I'd say, six months. And I would have lived an entire lives in that time. And they would say, God, it feels like I've done nothing since then. You know, mm -hmm. what happens when you live your life in the same place in the same, with the same people year after year? And I found it like a way of making my life last longer. I would, you know, this was one of my techniques for making my life seem to take longer. Right, right. So the thing about being connected, uh, I mean, I mean, I do Twitter because actually the James Salter quote came because I did Twitter. This is the really curious thing oh, about it. Okay. I would not have got that quote, not because James Salter did Twitter, but because his publicist in the UK does. And she, she, and she said yeah. something about All That Is, which is Salter's last novel, the last one he, you know, his first novel for 30 years, the one that came out two or three years ago. Mm. And he, you know, she suddenly tweets something about a new James Salter novel. And I said, God, I had no idea he's mm. written a new novel. Mm. And I cheekily said to her, um, can I get a proof? She yeah. said, of course you can, you yeah, know, and yeah. sent me one immediately. Yeah. I got one. And then, then I learn again from Twitter, that he's coming to London, his first visit for ages. So I texted, I, I sort of tweeted the publicist and said, and said, do you think I could get an interview? I know I'm not a journalist, but I think there's this, you know, there's a journal I could possibly write for. Mm. And she said, I think we can squeeze you in. And so I had an hour and a half conversation with James Salter in the lobby ah, of this hotel. Okay, we'll talk about um, that later on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, yes, yeah. and, and that all led, you know, okay. slowly into the quote. Yeah, if you don't know James Salter, an American writer... Oh, from, read Light Years, yes, because I agree. it's one of Light the most extraordinary yeah, yeah. 20th century novels. Which about. is not on sale in the tent, but mm. be on sale in, in Liscard or somewhere. Yeah. It's a great, great book. Um, yeah, thank you. Any other questions for Rupert? Um, yes, just oh. Said you work something like six and a half days a week. <laughs> yeah. So do you get the chance to read yourself? And if so, what do you like to read? Apart from newspapers and that um, kind of thing. I do. I mean it's it's a bit it's a bit complicated this year because um, 
the the book that I'm writing at the moment is about. I promised I wouldn't say too much about this. I keep sort of shooting my mouth off and telling everybody. No, it's about two real French women. It's a love story set in the second half of last uh, first half of last century. So it sort of begins in 1909 and ends in the 70s. And it's about two French women who really were alive and they lived in Paris during surrealism and then they moved to Jersey. And um, I've had to read a huge amount uh, about them this year. It's taken much longer than it would normally because all the, all the sources are in French. Um, they're quite obscure people. They're extraordinary women, but they're obscure. So um, a lot of my reading, actually, even outside of my writing, has been has been stuff to do with to do with them. There's the odd book that's crept through. I mean, I've obviously read The Crossing in its entirety because <laughs> I'm talking about it tomorrow. Lovely. Um, I'll prove it tomorrow if okay. I've read it all. Um, that was wonderful. I read a book by um, an American writer called Garth Greenwell. Don't know whether you've heard of it. What belongs to you? Uh, He's a gay writer. It's his first novel. It's, extra it's, a, it's a love story between an American, a young American in Sofia in Bulgaria, who meets uh, a guy off the streets, um, and it's about their, it's the love that happens between them. It's a very, very moving, beautifully written book. Um, um, and my, uh, I've got a friend called Hisham Matar, who's Libyan, who's just written a book called The Return about um, going back to Libya to look for his. Well, not to look for his father, because he knows that his father was imprisoned and murdered by Gaddafi. But he's going back to try and find out what happened to his father. Um, that's another... That's actually... I'm about to read that. But that, I've heard, is wonderful. Um, but no, I, I'd not, I, I don't read a huge amount. Usually it takes me a month or so. Sorry? Sometimes there's so much Yeah, there's a bit. I mean, I, I, I still think uh, I try to read stuff that I think is going to be really good because, you know, I want to be inspired by what I read rather than think, oh, God, that was a waste of time. <laughs> I don't have that much. You no, know, sure. I, I, I just, sure, sure. you know, and, and um, I don't know how you feel about this, but there's so many, there's just so many books published now. You well, know, yeah, and, yeah, and it's yeah, trying yeah, to work yeah. out which are the ones worth reading I and which I just aren't. Don't, I don't think about that. No, That's how you I do don't it. think about um, that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, I don't you know. I just got to ask if I wanted to judge uh, an Irish fiction prize and can they send 50 novels to me? And I'm thinking, no, no probably not. Please don't. But it's, um, do you have somebody by your desk, your table, uh, who you, you know, a book that's known, that's familiar to you, that you but that you touch in on just as a kind of almost like sounding chords at the beginning of the day, just to sort of, just for the language. Yeah. There is, are, this, is anyone there are, like that? They change actually through the years, but recently it's been um, Housekeeping, okay. Marilyn Robinson, yeah. which is just yeah, another book I'd recommend there. to anyone here. Um, yeah. She's a Canadian author. It's, it's, uh, that's one of those books I think that got chosen for The Observer's 100 Novels of All Time or yeah. something. Um, what else is there? Um, I had Michael Ondaatje for a long time, but mm. he's too, almost too well known now. I don't feel he belongs there. I used to, I had that really early novel, um, Coming Through Slaughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jazz yeah, novel yeah, about a trumpet player. That's that's wonderful. It's it's as you say, it's for the sentences. It's yeah. For, it's just just, to, just just the beginning of the day sometimes yeah. to sort of Flannery O'Connor sometimes warm um, up the uh, yeah yeah yeah. Okay, we've got time maybe for one more, and then this gentleman here or there's a 
Maybe we'll get, we'll get you in too, sir. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Until someone actually throws something at me, Thank we'll just you. keep going. With the, um, when you commenced the writing of Emma Carlyle, had you, without respecting, not, you won't say too much for the people yet to read the book, but had, were you aware of the conclusion for Emma Carlyle when you embarked on the uh, journey of writing the book? No, no, I really had no idea. Um, I mean, I, I sort of, when I was talking earlier about my first drafts, I mean, they, they, they really are into the unknown, and, I, and this is where I think, um, you know, to go back to that thing I said at the beginning about relieving yourself from pressure as a writer, my, my first drafts are allowed to be completely reckless and wild and um, anarchic. You know, I, I really can, I feel, I always give myself the permission to go anywhere. And I really have no um, plan or structure or end in sight. You know, I sort of write flat out. I usually write very fast. Um, the first drafts are often done very quickly. Catherine Carlyle took about 39 days, I think, um, from beginning to end the first draft. And, and it doesn't matter because, um, it doesn't matter if there are embarrassing things in there, which there often are, because, because no one's going to see it. Although in the case of Catherine Carlyle, someone did, <laughs> weirdly, because I, I did have to show it to my wife. Because there was a point at which, um, oh God, this is a bit of a long story. How do I tell it quickly? She, um, <laughs> no, uh, she, I, may, I was very excited when the idea occurred to me because I thought this is incredibly powerful and it's a great story and, and I made the mistake of saying something to my wife Kate about it and she said I don't want you to write that book <laughs> because she said you write things that often come true and, th and she has some evidence for this, um, small things in our family and things that have happened um, and she thought that I was actually writing about our daughter and putting our daughter's life in jeopardy and so um, so I had to give her the book at a certain point. I actually put it away for six years in a drawer and did other things. Um, it's very weird because that first draft of that book did the same thing as what happens to Karen, Catherine Carlyle inside the book. You know, she as an embryo is mm -hmm. put away in a cabinet for eight years. Well, the first draft of the book was in a drawer in a steel filing cabinet for six years. And then I suddenly sort of could feel it behind me like an area of heat. It was sort of saying, you probably have this too, you know, I, I want to be written now, I, I, it's my time. And so I, I said, Kate, listen, um, read my first draft, remember it's only a sketch, and if you think, um, if you say I still can't write it, then I won't write it, I'll write other things. So there was this really tense two weeks where I was waiting for her to, <laughs> waiting for her to come one. back That's to me, because I, I did really want to write it, it felt oh. like the urgent one, and um, I remember being in an... In a wonderful convertible open-top car by a friend, um, belonging to another writer, coming back from a festival, and my phone rang, and I just knew what the phone call was. I knew it would be Kate, having finished, and and I said, Kate, and she said, yes, I finished it, and I said, yes, and and she said, you can write it. I think it'd be brilliant. I think you can write it on one condition. And I went, yes. What's the condition? Because writers don't really like being given conditions. <laughs> they like to think they're totally free agents. Um, and she said, and it's really interesting because she said, the condition is that you, your ending has to be slightly different. And I said, thank you, brilliant. Because what I realized, you know, the first, one of the things wrong with the first draft was that I'd written the kind of ending that I'd done before in books. It was like one of my default endings. Mm. I, didn't, I didn't quite know how to end it, so I just did, ended it by doing, so having something quite dark happen. Um, but I already knew that I wanted to do something different. Mm. Um, 
So I said, that's brilliant, I agree. Yeah. You know, so I went ahead. Oh, the spooky thing. The spookiest thing um, about this was that Kate was actually right about my book predicting the future. Well, about predicting something that was going to come to pass. Because the first draft was written in 2006 and then put away in the drawer. In that first draft, um, as I mentioned earlier, um, Catherine's mother dies of a, ovary, of a kind of IVF-related cancer. Well, four years after I put that book in the drawer, my wife was diagnosed with a possibly IVF-related cancer. And there, were, there was a year or two where, you know, she was teetering on the brink of, of life and death, and we didn't know which way it was going to go. It was a very rare and aggressive cancer, and luckily she's here today, thank God. To ask the questions. Um, yeah. to, ask the, yeah. to remind yeah. me what to say, yeah. otherwise I wouldn't have known. Yeah. Um, so so, it, so what was really peculiar about that whole story was that um, I had predicted the future, but not in the way that Kate had imagined. Rubes, we, and forgive we, me, we, sir, we're going to have to, I'm getting signals in the back there, we're going to have to wrap it up. Um, thank you so much for coming along. It's very kind of you and sitting here. We've gone a little over time. I hope you don't mind too much. Um, thank you, Rupert. Thank you so much. That was Thanks great. Um, Rupert, we're going over to the tent, which is not very far away. Um, and you can maybe ask him a question there. And while you're standing over him, where he signs your book for you. It's a fabulous book. Um, if you haven't already got it, go and get it now. Um, thank you very much. That's it. Okay. Thanks, Thanks for, for coming. coming. Thanks for coming.